Hi, this is Iona Morris. You may remember me from my appearances on the original series and Voyager, and you're listening to Trek Untold. Welcome back to Trek Untold, the Star Trek-inspired podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. This week, we're speaking with one of the few actors who has worked on the original series and Star Trek Voyager. Her appearances were separated by over 30 years, and that is a real rarity. That person is Iona Morris. Iona appeared first on the season one episode of the original series entitled Miri, where she played a child on a planet where a virus caused adults to turn to hideous monsters. And she made her return to Star Trek in the season 7 two-parter from Voyager called Workforce. There, she played Umali, a bartender who hires Tom Paris to work for her in her establishment. They're both interesting episodes, and I really enjoyed revisiting Workforce, a real standout pair of episodes in the Voyager series. Iona essentially got her start in acting in Star Trek, alongside her brother Phil, who has appeared in many iterations of Star Trek shows and movies. But as we're going to learn today... After her appearance in the original series, Iona went a different direction, one that led her into voiceover work on anime, and eventually to the role many of us may remember her best from, and that's as the voice of Storm in the X-Men animated series from the 90s. I geek out pretty hard in this episode, and it wasn't pretty, but I think you're going to enjoy that moment. She's also been in L.A. Law, Law and Order, The Wayans Brothers, Moesha, and plenty of other shows and movies that we're going to talk about today. Iona has a real interesting life story with a lot of great life lessons that she learned along the way, some that she shared with us during this interview. It was truly an engaging and animated discussion, pun 100,000% completely intended. Before we begin this episode, I'd like to remind you to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Trek Untold. One word, no spaces. You can also support our show by visiting patreon.com slash trekuntold. If you're already following us or offering your support in any way, thank you for your help. Most of all, please make sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave a rating and review wherever it is that you're listening to it. This helps more people find us and hear the show. And I'd also like to make a quick shout out to our friends at Triple Fiction Productions, who make some great 3D printed Star Trek inspired products for toys and people. But you're going to hear more about them a little bit later. Now, without further ado, let's get this interview with Iona started now. No foolies. Computer, access interview file. Affirmative. Initiating program. Welcome back to Trek Untold. And now joining me on the other side of the line, we have Iona Morris. Iona, how are you today? I'm wonderful, Matt. Thanks so much. Well, thank you for being here with us today. Now, normally I ask people what their first memories of Star Trek are, but seeing as how you were on not only the original series, but the first season of the original series, I'm going to come back to that question. So I think before we get into this Trek, uh, let's just talk a little bit about how you grew up, who your family was, and uh, what brought you into the world of acting. Okay, cool. So I know that your dad was an actor. Uh, can you tell us a little about your mom and your siblings and where you grew up initially? Yeah. Okay, my dad was, uh, as you know, and I'll make sure the audience knows, was Greg Morris from Mission Impossible. He played the character Barney Collier, the smartest guy in the group. And um, we grew up in Los Angeles. I was born in Columbus, Ohio. We moved here when I was five. My mom was a jazz singer, and she was pretty doggone good. Her name was Lee Morris. But she had three kids. And at that time, women didn't go out and kind of do their own thing very much. So she stayed home to take care of the kids while my dad made it as an actor and she just never got back to her dream of being a singer. 
And that has actually propelled me forward in my life because I, I think that's sad because she was really, really terrific. Um, I have a brother and sister, as you know, Phil Morris, terrific actor. And he's also done several Star Trek. And my sister Linda was a writer and a wonderful sister. That's right. So you basically grew up around performers. Yeah. I grew up, well, really, my dad was the only performer. We can't. Well, his father was a saxophone player for the. Um, oh my God. Oh my God. Hey, uh, 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 oh God, it's going to kill me. Who is who is for? Okay, I'll, I'll remember. <laughs> I'll remember just a little bit. And uh, but but. Uh, a train, da, 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 da. oh, it's going to kill me. I know, you know, in the middle of the night, 3 a.m., my father's ghost is going to come to me and go, hey, kid. So, but those are the only performers we knew in our family. I'm trying to remember, that's actually like one of my favorite jazz songs, too. I'm trying to think who originally sang it. Duke Ellington? Duke Ellington, yeah, thank you. I, You know, I had the E, but I couldn't get the D, Duke Ellington. <laughs> and so, yeah, my mom is a singer, but it's funny, neither one of them came from a uh, performer family. Just the two of them, they ended up together. Oh, well, that's, that's some good kismet right there. And uh, I am curious now, you know, mm-hmm. how it led you and your brother into the world of acting. Well, Phil, you'd have to ask him. For myself, we were a really creative family. So before the days of computers and iPads and iPhones, we were always drawing or writing uh, short scripts. So my parents might go out to a party and they'd leave us. And when they come back, we go, okay, listen. So we wrote this little play. <laughs> and then we, we do a, this little play or, or we draw something really cool. Like one Christmas, uh, Phil, Linda, and I, we were up in uh, Lake Arrowhead, beautiful part of California, lots of snow. We were in the basement creating these large king and queen card figures. We painted, we kept those for years of our parents we gave them at christmas time and they framed them put them in their home it was really really kind of cool and so just artistically my mother was a singer so i would sing and i wrote and sang and i liked creating productions in school you know that's why i really think it's really important for kids to have the arts in school because it gets your mind active and imagination about the world doesn't mean you're going to be an actor or a singer, writer. You know what I mean? Yeah, very true. It opens up, right? It opens up your whole your curiosity about different things. That's how we got Einstein. We, we have all these brilliant people. And, and I think that's what the arts do. And that did that for me. And I've always wanted to act and I've always wanted to direct, which I'm doing a lot of now. And um, I just, one thing to another. Oh, I will tell you this. This is, I think, the turning point in my life. I was nine years old, and my father was already on Mission Impossible and very well known. And he never wanted his kids to be in Hollywood because we always saw kids in Hollywood, you know, destroyed in some uh, in some fashion. And so one day, a producer came to him. It was in the summertime, and he said, "Listen, we are looking for a little black angel girl for this cartoon, and we can't find anyone. Would you please let your daughter audition?" So he came to me and said, blah, 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 blah. They want you to audition. I'll let you do this because it's voiceover. I said, okay, I'll audition. Matt, I went into that booth, and the moment I opened my mouth and I started reading, a little voice said to me, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. Oh, that's a great story. Yeah, and 
Yeah, I just went on living my life, and lo and behold, um, I I love voiceovers. I've done many cartoons, as you as you know. Oh yeah, we're gonna talk about a lot of those because I grew up hearing your voice, and uh, you know when I first heard your name, and looked up who you were, I was like, oh my god, I'm gonna talk to Storm. But we're gonna come back to that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's talk about now uh, coming into Star Trek, and I am kind of curious since you, know, you were part of the first season of the original series. So I'm curious, uh, had the series already been airing when you filmed your episode? Oh, yeah. The series had been on, and it was successful. Um, it was on the Desi Lu lot where Mission Impossible was, Mannix was there, and on, and a couple of other shows I can't remember right now. And um, what they did when they got this script is they decided to go to all the actors and all the shows on the lot and asked them to see if their kids wanted to be in it. So William Shatner's children are in it. Um, we're in it and other actors' kids, I, I believe, um, Spock's kids, Leonard Nimoy's children are in it as well. And so that's how we ended up doing, um, getting on the, the episode. And of course, we were so young. I think I was, I was eight at the time, eight or nine years old. I just thought a cool one or two days out of school. This was fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so uh, we shot the episode. And, oh, I'll tell you one funny thing about that episode. So, yeah, it was two days. On the second day, my dad came to me and said, so baby, they really, they like you. And they want to give you lines. So would you like to read lines? And boy, I just started to cry. No, daddy, don't make me talk. Don't make me talk. I don't <laughs> want to speak. So they gave the lines to my brother. And I'm so pissed to this day with that little girl. Oh, <laughs> oh not really. But it's so funny. You know, those little things when you're a little kid. That's and the kind so of stuff that haunts you forever. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was my big break, Matt. It could have been my real big break. <laughs> <laughs> that episode so for that, our listeners was Miri, which is a really interesting episode, uh, and it's filled with a lot of children yeah. actors. So, uh, and as you mentioned, most of these kids were children of the actors on the on the Desilu set. So, uh, did you know a lot of these kids before you shot this episode? I don't think we knew any of them. Hmm. So then, what kind of set was that like then? Because you're basically with all these kids who are, uh, you know, whose parents are actors and everything, and you guys are all in this big big, enormous set together. Uh, I mean, did you guys just run around playing the entire time, or what was that like? Oh, yeah, we played. We had a good time. Great lunches, great snacks. It was it was a lot of fun. And, you know, when you're a kid, you're, you're not thinking about your dad as an actor. You're not a, your mom as a television star. You're not thinking about that. You're, you're just a kid being with other kids and hanging out and doing fun things and not going to school that day. And, and um working and we were you know when I I can't of course I was a child at that time but I can remember that I think the benefit of having most of us or all of us who were in the industry is we weren't afraid of or this wasn't foreign to us so there wasn't a lot of hey be quiet I think we were all pretty good at doing what was necessary in the moment because our parents uh, we had been around our parents who were after that so that was a benefit for us so in this episode, uh, the story is that when people on this planet become adults, they start to become sick. And there's a lot of kind of gross makeup, I, th I think, especially for the 60s, pretty scary kind of makeup. And as a young kid on this set, were you afraid of all these people running around in this kind of scary looking makeup? The woman who's, who goes crazy and she's dying and it's like all over her body. Oh, that freaked us out. 
Did you guys rehearse that scene before it happened or did it just happen? And then all of a sudden here she is. I can't, I don't even remember, but I remember it was a real scream. (laughs) So that was legitimate terror. Yeah. She was terrible. (laughs) That was scary. It was a good thing that it was only her, you know? Yeah. I wonder about that sometimes with the other kids on these horror films. I'm like, oof, what do they tell them? But yeah, it was, she was scary. So we didn't hang out with her very much. Now, in particular, you got to do several scenes with William Shatner. What do you remember about working with him? How was he with kids? I remember he was a very nice man. He is a very nice man. Uh, When I was a child at that time, Uh, friendly, he made us feel comfortable. Um, He was, uh, he was a daddy with us, you know, which is really great for kids that he could um, have fun with us. And then, you know, we're getting ready to work and then we shoot our scenes and, he was great at, at helping us um, feel comfortable. And, and as you mentioned, he had one of his daughters on set, uh, Elizabeth or Elizabeth. I don't know how to pronounce her name, but uh, she was there with him as well. Did you get to meet any of the other Star Trek actors? Since that episode also had DeForest Kelly, Leonard Nimoy. Were you able to spend any time with them as well? I think we met all of them. But uh, remember, I was eight years old, which I know was only 30 years ago. And I'm so kidding. <laughs> but I was, I was eight. So there are a lot of things. I can't tell you for sure, but it, it was a nice set and it felt safe. So I, I know that William Shatner was very nice and I know that, that Spock was very nice. And I'm pretty sure the other crew said hello to all of us, you know, welcomed us. I mean, here we are, all these kids, a bunch of, I don't know, had to be 20 or more kids on the set. That's got to be crazy to wrangle that many kids on a Star Trek show. <laughs> on any show. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think so. I work with kids on a show called Blackish, so yeah, I know. And just one last question to see if you can jog your memory about working on that original episode. Uh, did you ever get to meet Gene Roddenberry back then? I don't remember. I've met his, I believe one of his sons is involved with this the company. Um, and I say I believe because it was a, for a, um, another sci-fi convention where there's just a lot going on. Um, but no, I don't think I met him. I'm not sure. Okay. So, as you mentioned, uh, at the same time you guys were filming this episode of Star Trek, your dad was working on Mission Impossible. And I think that your episode of Star Trek actually debuted a month after Mission Impossible did. Mm-hmm. So it must have been a very exciting time for your family back then. You know, it it was. We were Television was um, fun and new, and we didn't quite understand it. You know, now kids grow up so aware of taking pictures and being video, uh, video, uh, putting uh, videos made of them on phones and constantly photographed. At that time, we weren't so much into television. So television was exciting. But for us, for me, it was strange because the kids treated me weird when I went back to school after my father's show aired. They treated us differently. And I didn't necessarily like that. I wanted to be just like all the other kids. And they the sixth graders, I remember when my dad's first show of uh, episode of a Mission Impossible aired on a Sunday, I went to school that Monday and the sixth grade kids, I was in elementary school, I was in first grade, the sixth graders were saying hi. And I thought, oh, man, that's only because my dad was on television. So, you know, when, you, when you're a kid, you want people to like you for you. So you mentioned a little bit about uh, how you weren't necessarily going to be part of the acting world initially. And, uh, you know, according to IMDb, there's a pretty big gap. Uh, aside from like one appearance uh, between basically after your Trek appearance 
to about 1980. So right. what were you doing in between that time besides just being a normal kid? During that time, I was kind of flexing my writing chops, writing a lot of poetry, writing little short stories that I kept to myself. Um, I was in some musicals when I was in school. And then I went to college, Pitzer College in Claremont, California, and realized that with everything I was doing and planning for my life, I really wanted to be an actor. So I left school after two years and I was living in Los Angeles, moved out on my own, much to my father's chagrin, who just knew I was going to be back home in no time, but I never went back home. (laughs) And (laughs) I started working at a really cool rock and roll radio station here called KHJ. And I worked for the music director. And what that meant is at that time, they had a lot of people who would come from uh, the music, uh, from the record companies, and they bring their new song. But then they go, hey, I remember, I remember when the record for Billy Joel, Don't Go Changin', first broke. I'll never forget that. We were the first station to play it. And uh, I, since I was the music director's assistant, every week we would do a uh, recording where these uh, um, the, the people, A&R people from the uh, record company could call in and find out what was happening with their record. And that's where voiceovers started for me. Because they would call in, they'd hear my voice, and they'd call up and go, who is that girl? So I, I kept getting that, and uh, they wanted to see if I wanted to be a DJ, but no, that wasn't what I wanted to do. And then I worked in another station in L.A., and that's where I would talk on the phone, and people would call up and say, who is she? I took my first voiceover class. I took another voiceover class. I took three voiceover classes, and then I took an animation class. I was 21 at the time, and that's when I started auditioning for different anim- animated products with Hanna-Barbera. It shows, I mean, not product. Uh, uh, Hanna-Barbera was really big, Warner Brothers, cartoons, and one thing led to another. And that's how I got into voiceovers. Acting, I was always in plays. And when I was in college, I was in a play and. My father was very upset. He did not want me to be an actor. He was concerned about um, I would end up eating beans or peanut butter sandwiches. I wouldn't be able to work. And he was concerned about these old men out here and how they were treating young women. I find it interesting that your dad was you know, such a big star and as well one of the first real African-American stars on TV. And here he is telling his daughter, don't go into this business. That's kind of crazy to me to think about that. Well, you know, he... Being a man and being around men all the time, he was worried about the casting couch. And being a performer, because that was something that was new to him, he didn't grow up in it. It was He was lucky. He really knew how lucky he was. And he saw a lot of actors, and especially black actors and actresses, who were not working. They might do a great guest spot. They might do a great commercial, but they really weren't making a living. So he was concerned about his children not making a living. And so, but he came to see me in a play called Death of a Salesman when I was in college. I was 19. And he wept and he said to me, you have to be an actor. This is what you're supposed to do. Trek Untold will return momentarily. 
Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. If you're a Star Trek cosplayer looking for props or toy collector looking to spice up your shelves, Triple Fiction Productions has you covered. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D printed Trek-inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. You can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog, whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film, or part of a cosplay, or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select. Own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights, the bridge of the Enterprise E for your Playmates figures, or any other item from countless species and ships from the Star Trek universe. All products are 3D printed in the USA and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. What's going on, everybody? It's your girl's favorite artist, Josie's boy. And I'm Alexis A. McCoy. And we are the hosts of Call Me When It's Over. We are more than just a podcast. We are a culture cast. Yes, yeah, so you can check us out every single Saturday with a brand new episode. We're available on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Google Play. And you can catch us on our homepage at RagsWorksNetwork.com. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at underscore Call Me When It's Over. That's right. And as always, speak up, speak out. And leave your ego at the door. We now return to Trek Untold. We were talking about your voiceover work, and uh, in 1980, you got your, I think, your first major role, or at least it is major now. I don't know how it felt at the time, but uh, that was a role in Lupin the Third in the English dub of that anime. And this would lead to a lot of other voiceover work, specifically in anime. So at that time, I don't really think anime was really that big or even that well known or understood by Americans, uh, and especially as being a product for more so adults than it is for kids. Did you know anything about manga or anime or any of that Japanese animation stuff at the time? Not a thing. And I didn't know anything about looping. I got a call one day from another actor who had given my name. And to this day, I don't remember who that was. I've often tried to think of that person so I could thank them. And I show up at this place called Intersound on Sunset Boulevard. I didn't know what looping was. I didn't know what I didn't know any of that. And I saw the product. They put up the animation on the screen, and you had to dub, which meant you had to fit your um, in your English dialogue into their mouth. And I was really good at that. And so I started working, and I've done several films. I haven't done it in many years, but I started doing that, and that led me to Robotech. Yes, he did Robotech. He went on to do Captain Harlock, Megazone 23, Silent Mobius. The list goes on. Uh, which anime did you enjoy doing the most? And did you start to watch any of this stuff and become a fan of it? Anime was still very early. It, it, it was still something that was so different that I didn't completely. Honestly, I, I was in many things, but I didn't completely um, jive with. I didn't dislike it, but it wasn't something I was like, oh, I really love this. What really got me was Robotech, because Robotech was a serial show. And so you got to know these characters. And so it, it was fascinating to me to see this animation from Japan where every week you got into these characters' lives. 
And I really liked that. That the, uh, Robotech I really loved. And then um, it was fascinating to me when we were in the studio and you've got an, a translated script into English that you're putting into the mouth movement. And it, it, it's an art form that is just wonderful because when you get a difficult sentence, it's just, it's a sense of real accomplishment and real creativity when you really cannot tell whether this was drawn to that person's mouth. And oftentimes in the, uh, in the recording studio, I remember we might change some words. It's so interesting. The, uh, the brilliant, brilliant uh, writers, they could write out a sentence. And then once we get in there, he, they, he or she would realize it actually at that time, it's mostly men. He would realize, Oh, wow. You know, that's actually two or three words, not just one. So some things we would find together. And that was very exciting. Yeah, it sounds like a very challenging type of voiceover work to do. Can can you tell us uh, and inform us a little bit about how you go through that process of making these syncing movements uh, and these sounds when you do anime? When you're when you're doing the work of uh, uh, dubbing in the script, you have a line. I really uh, the line is after we finish this, I need to go to the store, and that line was originally in Japanese. So the characters moving their mouth, labials, they're moving their mouth up and down. And the important thing is you've got to fit those words, those letters into that mouth. So when that mouth closes or when it or when 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 it's supposed to say I'm going to the store, when the store or happens, you have to see the shape of the mouth needs to be that shape. So you learn the line, pretty much you memorize the line. And you look at the mouth and you go with the rhythm. It's a rhythm. It's a movement technique. It's a creative technique because you can't just say, I need to go to the store. There's emotion. I really need to go to the store. So there's emotion in there that you've also got to put in. So you're putting in the movement of the mouth, the rhythm of the movement, the emotion. And after, uh, I really have to show you as we're looking at animation, but it's just interesting as the mouth goes up and down, those are labials that are happening, B's and C's and K's and K's that are going on and L's and M's and N's and P's where you see the mouth moving. And once you uh, uh, learn that, that's how you know you need to put those words in. Very interesting. And I like, yeah, it really, it, it really is because not a, everyone can do it. I think you have to have rhythm. I think you have to be musical um, and you have to be a good actor as well um, and to memorize the movements. It's like going fish. Oh, my God. Was that mouth move? Was that mouth opening after the after she throws her head back? Did she open her mouth? Did she close her mouth? So you're looking at the physical movement of the anime as well as the character's movement, which tells you so much about how they emotionally feel in the moment. You know, we don't need any language to see someone's body language to know what they're emoting in that moment. Yeah, it's very fascinating. And clearly you've got quite the talent for this because you've gone on to do so much more work in voiceover, uh, not just anime, but also American shows that we're going to talk about now. Um, So you were on both The Real Ghostbusters and Extreme Ghostbusters, which I'm a giant fan of. You've been in The Tick, Bobby's World. Uh, You were Medusa in The Fantastic Four, The Wild Thornberries. Uh, and now we come to the character that I'm most excited to pick your brain about. Uh, and that's, you got to play Storm from the X-Men animated series. And yeah, not going to lie, I'm I'm 
way more excited to talk to you about Storm than I am about Star Trek right now. So, <laughs> yeah, just tell me what it was like to work on the X-Men animated series. Again, now, not know much, as much about anime. Did you know anything at all about X-Men or Marvel comics? Not a thing about the X-Men. So that's a really cool story. A gentleman, and I believe Larry is his last name. I just looked it up. Larry, um, Larry is his first name, and I'm just looking for Larry Houston, I yep. think was his name. Yep, Larry Houston. Larry Houston. I believe it was Larry, and if not, Larry's going to get the credit. I worked with Larry in anime. So years have passed. I haven't worked in anime. I'm off doing other voiceovers, and um, I get a call one day, and he says, listen, I, I am bringing the X-Men. I don't know who they are. He, tried, he explains them to me. I'm like, okay, we're going to do this animation, and it's, you, you, I need you to come in and voice, um, uh, replace this voice, a storm. And so I came in. I, he already wanted to hire me. He was the director, writer. And, but the people in Canada, it was a Canadian animated show. They needed to hear my voice to sign off on. So I came in, auditioned. They loved it. They hired me. So that night I called my brother up and I go, hey, Phil. So, Because he is the comic book king. King. Let me tell you, he's got so many originals. So I knew he would know. So I said, hey, babe, got this job as playing Stormy. Went, oh, come over right now. <laughs> I come over. He brings out a couple of magazines. I mean, a couple of comic books, along with the white gloves. And I take them out of their plastic um, sheaths. And I'm reading, and oh, my gosh. I'm like, man, Storm is a badass. This is going to be so cool. I'm very excited about this. And then for years, I voiced Storm, uh, and it was wonderful. It was very important to me as she became, as, as X-Men became very uh, famous and well-known and myself with the show, The Voice, that I met with the uh, animator over the phone. And I told him I really wanted Storm to stay the color she was. She was a brown-skinned woman superhero and i wanted that because i was concerned that as the popularity went sometimes the color from ethnic characters can become desaturated yeah i can actually give you a good example in star trek in fact uh on my youtube channel nerd news today we, we reviewed an action figure of uh, commander cisco and we noted how that figure actually had lighter skin as opposed to a later version uh where they actually made the skin more accurate to avery brooks's color so it's interesting that even just for that first line of ds9 figures they kind of whitewashed commander cisco a little bit yeah it, it you know it, it's a it's a shame because what i think is wonderful about our world and especially in sci-fi is we have a we have a lot of different races as uh, blacks, Asian, Latino, white, um, uh, um, indigenous people, islands, a lot of different races you see as the commanders, captain, um, orderlies, all of them working on a ship or working in the world. Uh, the Matrix is fake, famous. You see, it's so ethnically diverse. And you see how famous it is. And what I think in my industry back then, and because of that, we've changed a lot. We still have more to do. But the diversity of our world supports us more than hurts us. I think if you leave Storm a dark-skinned woman and Avery Brooks' character a dark-skinned man, then when that child or that adult, whoever, 
of, of uh, white complexion or Asian is walking down the street and they see a black man, they may not be as frightened. Black woman, they may not think of her less than because they have seen other images that inform them that they too have a, a bright people and have superpowers. And the same thing with black kids being able to see someone who looks like them. Um, it allows them to feel pride and know they can do whatever they they want to do too. Their curiosity and imagination is massaged. And um, as I see us adding more ethnicity to these uh, stories, I think it just makes us stronger. I, I, I always aching it to going to a restaurant. I love to eat out. I can't right now. But when I do, I'd like to have a variety on my menu. I don't just want a couple of things. And that reminds me of life, a variety. That's a great analogy to make for that. And the character of Storm as well, it's kind of interesting. And this is a problem that still plagues animation and voiceover work today, is that uh, you were not the first person to do the voice of Storm, but you were, I think there was uh, three or four people before you. And up until that point, you were only the second person of color to voice Storm, which I just think is insane. Yeah, yeah, that's it's really something. You know, we don't do that so much now. We really try and stay with the ethnicity. And not that not that you can't learn to sound like or to have an accent, but there is something of the authenticity of the spirit that you... Don't you feel that when you watch animation or even the robotics on yeah. uh, Star Trek? We, know, we don't see their faces, but we feel their spirit. Yeah, exactly. I do want to ask a little bit more about Storm because, you know, Storm is my queen, uh, you brought so much <laughs> with her character. It really made me fall in love with her, and she's still one of my favorite X-Men. So where did that Storm voice come from within you? I was told she was powerful. She was um, nurturing. She was from uh, Nam 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 Nambia, I believe. She's from a small country in Africa. So they wanted to have a generic African accent, nothing too thick, so the, they wanted to still understand the words. Uh, let me see, I said powerful, nurturing. Um, she was a woman of stature. She wasn't a young girl. She was wise. So when they gave this to me, <laughs> I do a little thing where I kind of, um, you know, I, 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 I kind of rock back and forth and I find in my, in my register, in my body, where I can feel um, the power or the nurturing and the sound and the, of that person. And, and then I, I, I feel their spirit inside of me and I, I see what generates that is authentic. And then I just record it and see if hopefully it works. And they showed me pictures of her and I thought she was stunning and wonderful. A wonderful character. I was very proud of that. I got to tell you a funny story, Matt. I was in New York City. So I had voiced storm for three years and then they used a canadian talent and um i was in new york city and i was in one of the little uh, bodegas they have on the corner in new york city and i was getting something to eat no i was getting a magazine and i was talking to the clerk and all of a sudden i hear this little boy say dad is, is she <laughs> and the dad goes no and then i i just keep talking and the father goes oh my god Storm. <laughs> they said, excuse me, ma'am, are you Storm? I, I just, out of nowhere, it was so great. I said, yes. And their response just made me feel so good that um, they relate to her. They feel the way you feel about Storm. And it was just 
it was a lovely moment that they just heard me speaking naturally, but the essence of storm is still there. Now, you just alluded to it, and uh, just real quick, I, I would like to get the story, because it's kind of some BS in my opinion, but can you tell our listeners why you were ultimately re- replaced on the X-Men animated series? Oh, my. The reason why I was replaced is because when you work as an actor, oh, shoot, I'm just going to tell the truth. When you work as an actor, you get residuals. So every time the cartoon played, I got a residual. I should. I voiced the character. Well, they didn't want to pay that any longer, the production. So if they use a Canadian voice, all they have to do is pay them one fee. And that's why they went to Canada. Yeah, and unfortunately. And that was really, that's very upsetting. Yeah, and it's unfortunate. You know, this was, uh, I believe Haim Sivan was, from my understanding, the person that kind of pulled the trigger on that decision. And he's kind of messed with a lot of people's careers. So it, it sucks that's how your time with Storm ended, unfortunately. Yes. You know, I'll tell you, that is a part of my business that I do not like because I really feel as a director myself and uh, a short film I just produced and directed and with uh, as a director, I'm always in some way connected as a producer because I I assist in hiring a lot of people who work on all the productions I work on. I believe that you are only as strong as your weakest link and that all of us create the benefits that come from a creative project. And that if if you cut someone out unceremoniously and cut them out, period, you are, um, I think you're missing some of the, the blessings and the goodness that comes to the project because you, your project is successful because of, because of the assistance of what that person's done, not only because of one person, but because of that creative force is there. And so as successful as the production company has been, it would have been nice for them not to do that. It does happen in my industry quite a bit, though. But we move on. That's the thing. You know that that's what happens, and you move on to other wonderful projects. And you have the memory. Yes, you definitely did, Iona. And uh, I'm going to work backwards a little bit here and just talk about a few other shows before we get to Star Trek. And uh, one of those things I'd like to talk to you about was uh, from 1985, and that was when you were on the Twilight Zone reboot, the first reboot. Uh, you were in an episode called Chameleon, which was written by a man named James Crocker, who went on to actually also be a writer and supervising producer on Deep Space Nine. But the episode you were in, Chameleon, it was directed by Wes Craven, who we know as the man behind the Nightmare on Elm Street, Scream series, and so many other horror films. So uh, what was it like working with Wes Craven? He was a lovely man. Really lovely. Of course, very good at what he did. He was He's an actor's director. So he was really into us as actors and the emotion in the scene, um, what we were projecting in the scene, what he wanted, the, the mes- message of our piece about humankind. As the original Twilight Zone, who was our original host on the Twilight Zone? Uh, Rod Serling. Thank you. Rod Serling was the way he was with each episode. That There's a message in every Twilight Zone about humanity, about the human condition. And so Wes was very much about that with the episode we worked on. And it was a lovely episode. Um, As a matter of fact, I had been, I just moved back to LA, I think a year or two from New York City. And I was doing a lot of theater. And that um, was one of those times in the actor's life when a show comes along. And after I did that episode, I then went on to do, to perform in a lot of guest star spots on television. 
So I'm going to fast forward a little bit to uh, an appearance you had on a show about 10 years later, but around the same time you were actually doing that Twilight Zone reboot, your father was on this particular show we're going to discuss, and that's Murder, She Wrote. Uh, and you got to play, yeah. you got to play the role of Lieutenant Estelle Carr. Uh, your character is pretty important in this particular episode. Uh, so can you tell us what you remember about working on set with Angela Lansbury and being on Murder, She Wrote? Murder, She Wrote was wonderful. It was a really terrific experience. Um, I was a young actor. I came in prepared. I did my work. It was terrific. Until the day with Angela Lansbury, I made a fatal mistake as young actors do. This is what I did. The first day I worked, she wasn't there. We were on location. It was wonderful. Wind was blowing. My Clara hair was just blowing perfectly. <laughs> um, it, it was a beautiful California day. The crew was terrific. Really enjoyed it. And then on my second day, I worked with Angela. Well, I didn't. That was a scene. We did. I didn't have a lot of lines with her that day. I was on for, I think, maybe three days or five days. I don't remember now. And um, so I lightly learned my lines, but I was, as old folks call, I was smelling myself. I was feeling very cocky. I was feeling really good because I was the hit the day before. Everyone loved me. I knew my lines. I was right where I was supposed to be. I looked good on camera. I had good stuff going on. So I kind of, I learned my lines, but I didn't sit and study them like I had for the day before. Well, when the power of someone like an Angela Lansbury comes in front of you with her work and you're a young kid who is still, I have somewhat of a foundation, but I was still really finding my foundation of work. Um, I want to explain that. As, a, as an actor, as um, someone right now you're doing your podcast, as a radio personality, as a, um, a ditch digger, as anything you do that is um, a career, a craft, that's more than a job, there is a, a foundation you have that you tend to always do so that your work is of quality. And I didn't do all of my foundation. So on the day with her, I kept forgetting my lines and I was mortified. I couldn't believe it. And she was so gracious because she understood. She saw that I was good. She knew I was earnest. And she knew that not only was I nervous, that, that I was nervous. Because here I was with such a powerful performer. So Angela Lansbury was wonderful. We got the scene, and the next day I showed up, I was Johnny on the spot. I made up for what I had done the day before. And I, I, I had, on that experience, I was so mortified and upset with myself. But I learned. And the reason why I give you that example is because all of us fall on our ass at some point. It's not how you fall, it's how you get up. That's a very great lesson you got to learn with the help of Angela Lansbury. How many people can say that? I know. <laughs> and she was gracious all the way through. So we're almost at the time of your Voyager appearance, but I want to talk about a few other UPN shows that you got to work on as well. And one of those was a recurring role on UPN's show Moesha. Uh, you got to play Sandy, who was the adoptive mother of the character Dorian Long, played by Brandy's real-life brother, Ray J., uh, so how'd you like working on Moesha and doing a lot of scenes with Ray J? I really enjoyed that. Those group of actors, 
Loretta Devine. Uh, not Loretta Devine. I'm sorry. She's going to kill me. Don't kill me, Loretta. Oh, God, I can't even believe. Well, uh, I can't even believe I'm forgetting some of these actors' names. I have to go online. I'm digging up your them, past here. All the actors. Yeah, yeah. Thank, thank God I can look. I can, you've got everything right in front of me. Um, Cheryl Lee Ralph. Oh, Cheryl's going to kill me. Cheryl Lee Ralph and William Allen Young played the parents. And I really loved uh, working on that show. Um, I played actually Ray J's mother initially, initially, and then you find out I actually adopted him. And I'll tell you a funny story about him, Brandy's brother. I did a film many years before that, maybe about five years before that, with the fabulous Felicia Rashad called Once Upon a Time When We Were Colored. Really cool film. People would love this film. I played a dancer. And takes place in the 30s in the Deep South. And Ray J was in it as a little boy. And I hadn't seen him for five or so years. So now he's this kid playing my son on Moesha. And it was so fantastic to see him after all those years. That's really cool. Really, um, Yeah, yeah, it was was really great. Um, I really liked the show. I loved my my part. Um, I thought Moesha was a terrific, terrific show. Now, you did one other UPN show, as I alluded to. I don't know how you're going to feel about this one, uh, and I don't think I'm going to really get to talk to anybody else who's been on this series. But you got to be on Homeboys in Outer Space. And uh, <laughs> I, I have to ask you, what, tell us about Homeboys in Outer Space and what it was to be on that set. That's just like such an oddly bizarre, forgotten show that you can actually find now on YouTube if you do a little digging, and it's kind of a lot of fun, i got to be honest. <laughs> it is. It's really, you know, it, it's like a B or C rated movie that you can't take your eyes away from. It, it was, you know, it was a crazy concept that was just fun. And why, why not? <laughs> we, that was a fun show. I worked on that all week long, too. That was a fun show to be on. Yeah, just real forgotten gem, honestly. Uh, I'm, I'm not surprised it didn't get renewed beyond the first season, but, uh, you know, fun little thing if you guys can check it out. It's worth digging up. Yeah, yeah, it was a fun little thing. You know, back then, they didn't have as many, of course, the uh, um, avenues to see, watch television. And I think if it were to come out now, it would probably, that now that would be a really cool show to revamp. Yeah, and it's just kind of funny, just like looking at it again. Uh, this was, in, in a way, almost a breakthrough, but almost kind of a stagnant breakthrough, because it's basically a, an a sci-fi show with predominantly people of color in it. And you don't really get that even today that much. But uh, I just feel like, you know, the material wasn't quite handled as well as it could have been. It was missing a few steps. So it was yeah. like it was almost there, but not quite ready. And I think if it was done today, yeah, they'd get it right. Yeah, they were, I'm with you. It was it was so new. And I think there was a little fear about are people going to get it? You know, I, I, I and I don't know that for a fact, but it was a groundbreaking show that was it was only on for a year, a year or two. I don't really remember it now. So finally, 2001, we have now reached your appearance on Star Trek Voyager. And that was in the two-parter from Season 7 called Workforce. Really great two-parter. Uh, you got to play the role of the bartender, Umali. So uh, let's just start at the beginning here. How did you get the call for that role? Okay. Now, let me see. Was that the fifth time? Third? That could have been the third time or fourth time I had auditioned for Star Trek. Now, let me tell you. Star Trek, I, I, I'm a Trekkie from way back when, too. So I love, 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 love Star Trek. And every time I had auditioned prior to this, 
I either had um, was coming for it was like a last minute thing. So I was working on a play because I, I direct theater. I'm working on a play. And if I'm writing something at that time, I'm so busy doing that. Then I wasn't quite into the audition for the Star Trek, for Star Trek. But I really want the part. But every time I auditioned, I didn't get it. Didn't, and I was like, when am I going to get this part? So finally, this part comes up and I can just feel it. It's got to be mine. And sure enough, I got the part. You talk about a fan girl, fan boy, loop de loop de mind blown early, three o'clock in the morning when I woke up to get dressed to go because I've got five hour makeup ahead of me. And I walk on that lot and I'm just in heaven. Now I've done all these other shows on 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 the lot. It's the, uh, the Paramount lot lot at that time. I did all these shows. I was not new to acting, but Star Trek, I was in fan geek out craziness. And all I all I kept doing was being thankful that that this part was mine, that I was there to work on the show that was just my my dream show to work on. Um and so I worked on it for a day. I was I had makeup for five hours and it was a fantastic, fascinating experience to get that makeup on. Right, I'm going to definitely ask about that, but since you brought it up, I've got to now poke you a little bit with this question here. Do you remember the other parts that you were uh, auditioning for before you got this role for Star Trek? Yes. My new, not my new, but who has become for many, many years one of my best friends in the world, Penny Johnson Gerald. Oh, yeah, Penny Johnson. Yes, Penny Johnson got that uh, uh, part as, I think, a commander. Do you remember? She was in Deep Space Nine. She played um, the girlfriend who used to come in in and out. I auditioned for that one. She she dated the captain. Yep, and was, I didn't get that part. That was Cassidy I'm Yates. Sorry? Right. I didn't get that doggone it. I wanted that one. Penny got it. Uh, she better be glad I like her. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and the other two roles were not memorable to me. So they might have been just a, a, a guest star like mine, but they might have been just normal people. What I liked about Umali was Umali was an alien. And I was the only one of my emollient people. Yeah, that was a pretty unique looking character, too. And you had some fun prosthetics on. And you mentioned that was a five-hour makeup session. So for folks who don't really understand all the prosthetic process, can you kind of run down what it was like to be cast, and literally the word cast in this case, uh, for this role, and just doing all the prep to be on scene, where, where I imagine you probably spent most of your day just in the makeup room as opposed to actually on set? Yes, I did. Um now, the, all, the total makeup process, I don't remember all of it, but I can tell you this. They do, they cast your face, and they're making a mold of your face. And then they pour a liquid in it that comes out that's a little bit like almost rubbery feeling that goes on your face. And then they adhere that onto your face with a little bit of glue, but it's for the face. And the edges of it, they smooth, so it becomes part of your skin. And then they begin to paint it with a base, and then they paint it with your skin coloring. So it looks your skin coloring along with whatever, and I can't remember how they put, they must have been other pieces of material that then are put on for um, um, what happened with my head was protruding, and there it's airbrushing. That was my first time being introduced to air brush makeup 
So they airbrushed most of the coloring onto you, as in the dark shade parts of your face, different colors of your face, uh, texture they put on so it looks like it is your skin. And then their, the, the headwear they put on to make sure, you know, they had different headwear that we tried and we finally landed on one that I thought was just really interesting. And then something you guys never got a chance to see. They gave me these orange, these big orange cat-like, um, not glasses, but um, contact lenses. And she was fabulous. But I'd never worn contact lenses before. The con When they finally put the contact lenses in, after I'd made up, I waited another five hours before I did the scene. Well... The contact lenses started to make me tear and it scratched my cornea. So they had to take them out. And now it's time to shoot the scene. So my right eye will not stop tearing. It will tear big drops and then it'll stop for a few seconds. So the way we shot the scene is we had to shoot the scene where I'd say a few words. And if I, after a while, it became so difficult to shoot the scene without my eye tearing that we had to shoot the scene and then I'd freeze as they came and wiped my face from the tear, go back a couple of words and continue with the scene. Oof, that is a really rough process to go through. Oh my God, I, I couldn't believe it. I've waited all these years <laughs> to, to get back on Star Trek and this ends up happening. The uh, cool thing was we got it. And the actor I worked with was very patient and understanding. It was really great. We got the scene. I it, it, I was disappointed that the show didn't go forward. You know that it was the last season because it really could have been a cool character to develop. Now you mentioned that scene you were with. Uh, that was with Robert Duncan McNeil. He was Tom Paris, uh, and you said he had Tom a ton Paris, of patience right. in that scene. So what was it like working with him, being side by side with him in that scene? Very nice gentleman. Very good actor. You know, all the actors on Star Trek were pure actors. Very good. You know, now in a lot of shows, well, some shows, especially on cable, you have people who have a high, um, they end up on a television show because they have a lot of followers. These weren't people who necessarily had, they didn't have that kind of a thing at that time. We didn't have Instagram, Facebook. These were good, trained actors. He's a wonderful actor, very nice man. Um, this was one of their final episodes. So there was a lot of emotion around the set. There were guys on the set who knew my father, who knew my brother. Um, a couple of them had worked there when I was a kid. Of course, I didn't remember, but they told me. And it was a very loving space. All of the extras who worked on Star Trek, they were very sweet and there was a, a lot of love you could feel. There were some happy people who felt they had done some really great creative work. And they were sad to see it go. But, you know, they were happy then to move on to new things, you know, in their lives. But I remember that was a very nice few days to be there. Yeah, that's a great memory to have about working on Voyager. Now, the episode that you were in was directed by Alan Croker. He did part one of Workforce. Uh, and he was a veteran of Trek. He'd done over three dozen episodes of Trek, including the series finales for Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and Enterprise. What do you remember working with him? And was he just as patient as Robert was in that scene? 
Oh yes, they all were. They were. Uh, they were all very uh, uh, apologetic and very uh, concerned. Fortunately, the eye healed faster than any part of your body, so they took very good care of me. Um, and they were all very patient. Um, you know, uh, as I told you before, uh, once before, it's not that you fall; it's how you get up. So this is a problem that we have to work through, and that's what I was doing. Um, I just worked through the problem so they could get what they needed. So they appreciated that. And they were all very patient and giving. Now, when this episode aired, did you watch it on TV? Were you watching Voyager as a fan that time as well? Oh, I absolutely watched it. I could not wait. I told everybody. <laughs> Didn't you get a letter from me? <laughs> <laughs> Still waiting for it. <laughs> yeah, I uh, definitely watched it. And were you happy with how it all yeah. came together? I really was. No one could ever tell. But I, because I knew what the cat eyes looked like, I was like, oh, man, that would have just set off the whole thing. Um, but it looked great. It looked great. I was happy with the work. And I thought that Tom Paris and I had a you know great little relationship there together, the friendship. He worked. For, I was his boss. Yeah, it was good chemistry between you two. Uh, and again, it gets, I felt like it was a little bit of that commanding presence that Storm has had also. So that's, that's, that's something I felt out of it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, I can see that. So after Voyager, you continued to work in many TV and voiceover roles and as well as video games. And so the one I want to talk to you about in particular, it's probably not the most glamorous of roles that you've done in voiceover period, but you got to work on Grand Theft Auto V. And uh, I believe you're one of the people who did like a lot of the background audio for characters. So I'm curious, what is a recording session like for a Grand Theft Auto game? It is pretty much like a lot of the recording sessions when you come in. You're um, coming in by yourself. You have a series of lines. If they have, and I don't remember, honestly, from this and at that time, but sometimes if they have uh, a section that's already drawn, then they'll show it to you on a television screen so you can see what's happening. Um, there are several people in the outer room with the engineer uh they're there to give you direct one's giving direction there are often several people who are talking about to make sure the mood at the moment is what they wanted the edge of the character is what they wanted um that the story is moving forward with every single line there is nothing at all wasted and it's always a lot of fun changing your voice um uh, a higher voice a lower voice an accent a uh, gruffer voice, um, a voice with a different tempo to it so that it adds another slice of personality to it. All kinds of things. I, I really enjoy doing that. And I particularly like when I'm playing several different characters because the people don't know it's the same character. <laughs> they, don't know, they don't know. It's kind of fun. Very true. Now, obviously, we can go down every single thing in your resume for voiceover work and acting, but we're going to be here all day if we did that. Um, but I would like you to update our listeners on what it is that uh, Iona Morris is doing these days. Well, these days, uh, for the last six years, I've been working on a show called Blackish as their dialogue and acting coach with the kids on the show who've won a lot of awards, and they're just tremendously talented. Wonderful. And that's been really terrific. And the reason why I took that job was because I, I've been directing a lot of theater and I want to start directing television and film. And it gave me a chance to be part of the crew and to see how directing, how it is to direct a television show. 
Uh, we have a different director every week, so it's been really magnificent to do that. Um, I've been doing that for the past six years. I just shot my first short called Celeste Dreams that I exec produced, wrote, and directed. And as soon as the coronavirus is finished, then it will start to enter into festivals, which will be really cool. And um, right now, like everyone, things have stopped. Other jobs that I had coming up have stopped. I'm getting back into voiceover, so I'm part of a voiceover professional workout group every two weeks so that I can get my chops back into the game and learning new things with the computer and 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 uh, an iPad. Of um, We're all creating studios in our homes now, so I'm creating a studio in my house. And there are two really cool things that I just started working on that I love. One is called Goodies of Gratitude. And that is where people make home-baked goods and deliver them to our frontline heroes in the hospital. And we just had our first Goodies of Gratitude Day where we had nine bakers and four hospitals and we delivered oodles of cakes and pies and cookies and cupcakes and they loved it and it's going to become yeah it's going to become a national um event that two partners of of mine and i are putting together so i'm really excited about that to support our medical workers and then the other one is on friday night that's something called zumeta's poetry jam which We just had our first one last Friday night, and it was, we had over 40 people. That's awesome. Yeah, Yeah, 14 poets, and really cool. I'm I'm looking for things that that creatively can keep me alive, you know, keep me vibrant, keep me, uh, my mind active through this time, and giving back, and hoping to create space for other people to give to doctors, nurses, the security guards, everyone who works at a medical facility, and also writers and poets. Those are just two of the things I'm working on right now. Yeah, you mentioned earlier in this interview as well about how you wrote poetry uh, when you were younger, and you're still doing it today, I imagine. And in my research uh, about you getting ready for this interview, I saw some spoken word performances you did with some Maya Angelou pieces. So how influential has Uh, her words been to you during your life and career? Maya Angelou's words have been very important because she took lemons and made lemonade. She just let her voice, the, 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 the words that came to her, she just put them out there. And the way she crafts her words is so beautiful. So you can see the character she's talking about creating a moment. Um, I love my Angelou's work. One of her my favorite poems is called Phenomenal Woman. And it's just a beautiful long poem about a woman who is not necessarily as pretty as everybody out there, but she is gorgeous on the inside and powerful and sensual and dynamic. And I think during this time, writing is a way for us to get out our anger, our frustration, our fears, and clear out the space to see that through all of this corona madness right now, there is something in 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 this time for us to grow from and to become better from. I'm saddened with all the lives we, we are losing and the people are being sick and the businesses. And through this, we just have to come out better. Yeah, I, I agree 110%.
So, Iona, you're, as we mentioned, of course, your father was a very prolific actor. He's done so much throughout his career. And uh, you mentioned he wasn't really too keen on you becoming an actress in the first place. But once you became it, he was very, very happy for you. Had he given you any advice that stuck with you throughout your career? My father said, you can do anything you want to do. He said, as long as you study and you work hard. And he was very much into being respectful of yourself and um, being curious about life. Um, About acting, per se, he never gave me anything really about acting. You know, when I started, of course, I was a young kid who knew everything. (laughs) You know, kids are. But what he did do was teaching me about life. And uh, from Mission Impossible, he said, you know, you can know the executive producers and the writers, they're great. The actors are wonderful. He said, but your crew, your crew, they're the ones who, the makeup, the hair, the wardrobe, the lights, the set, the sound, your every, and the drivers, the cater, crafty, cater, the crew are the backbone of any given show. And my dad taught us to respect everyone, no matter uh, how much they had in their pocket and no matter uh, what their name was or nationality, ethnicity, or any, he, he taught us to respect ourselves and to respect others. And I really appreciate that from my dad because um, it's been a good thing that has served me well in my life and the way my brother and sister and I live. My mother would always say, find your light and don't bump into the furniture. <laughs> that's that's an outstanding lesson and a great way to put it. Yeah. So, Iona, my last question for you today, what is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? There's a history. Star Trek started from a little idea that could have been poo-pooed away because there was nothing like it on television. But someone had belief in their dreams, in their imagination, in their curiosity. Gene Roddenberry, he had belief. And he went forward with this project and others got on board. And it's cre- creating a universe, world, um, characters that spun on from more than half, more of my life, there's been a Star Trek um, um, over 50 years of Star Trek. And not everybody has been on Star Trek. So there is a family. Um, there are iconic characters, I feel, of every guest person that's been on Star Trek. They are iconic characters that stand out in every version of Star Trek. Voyager, Deep Space Nine, on and on. And i that's a family that is a very special family because Star Trek started so much. And that's what I love about being on Star Trek. You can see young kids to those, unfortunately, who are no longer here. The original five or eight. Oh, my God. We're so lucky to still have Shatner. And you are one of those guest actors who's contributed to the world of Star Trek. And that's why we're doing this podcast is to talk to folks like you who, uh, you know, might not have a, as big of a voice as William Shatner. So it's been really great to, to chat with you and 
hear your thoughts about not just Trek, but your entire work. Thank you. Thank you. It's nice to do this with you, Matthew. You're a wonderful interviewer. Oh, thank you so much, Iona. And we appreciate your time today. It's been very enlightening. And uh, yeah, thank you again for talking to us and for especially for being on Star Trek for such with such a gap in between. (laughs) Absolutely. I would just like to say this, whatever your dreams are, whatever vision you can see for yourself, if it continues to gnaw at you, listen to it and do it. Even if it seems like, oh my God, who's going to ever think that my idea is going to be great? Well, if you think it's great, that's enough. You never know who you may meet along the way or who's going to jump on board to help your story get out there. Every no for every actor is a strengthener of uh, helping to strengthen your craft because there will be yeses. Just hang in there. Never give up. That's what I want to share. That was our chat with Iona Morris. And I have to say, this was one of my favorite interviews to do so far in this series. She was really down to earth and her positivity and good vibes just came right through the phone we were chatting. I hope you felt the same way while you listened to her and this conversation today. In the original series episode, Miri, the sets may look familiar to some eagle-eyed viewers who know their classic TV. They were, in fact, redressed sets from the Andy Griffith show and were reused three more times in Star Trek. You could see them again in the return of the Archons, Errand of Mercy, and the classic City on the Edge of Forever. As Iona mentioned, many of the actors on Star Trek and other Desilu shows brought their kids in to be extras in that episode. But one of the actors who refused was Leonard Nimoy, as he didn't want his kids to get involved in showbiz. Of course, we know that's pretty ironic now, since his son Adam later directed two episodes of Next Gen, and then later a documentary about his father called For the Love of Spock, and then directed and produced the Deep Space Nine documentary, What We Left Behind. The Voyager episode's workforce were nominated for two Emmy Awards, one for Outstanding Music Composition for a Series, and the second for Outstanding Special Visual Effects for a Series. Sadly, they lost both, but the winner was actually the Voyager finale, so... In the end, really, everybody won. So thank you for listening to this week's episode of Trek Untold. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show. And if you can, leave a review and rating. We'd appreciate it very much. You can also follow us on social media. Just look for Trek Untold on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you and let us know what you think about the show. If you'd like to support this podcast, check out patreon.com slash trekuntold to learn how you can keep our ship operating at full power. Once again, thank you to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions, And shout out to Scott Ray for setting up this interview. If you'd like to book this week's guest for a convention appearance or an autograph signing event or anything else, you can email Scott at scottray67 at aol.com. This has been Trek Untold. I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and until next time, fortune favors the bold.